This morning I'm reading from the epistle of 1 John chapter 3. If you've been following along in the lectionary readings that we share in the bulletin each week, I believe this was the passage maybe last week. Um, and so if you've been doing those readings, you've been in the book of 1 John. Um, and so this will sound familiar to you. I'll read 1 John 3 verses 11 to 24. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil, and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Growing up in Holland, Michigan, around this time of year, we were always gearing up for tulip time. When this week-long festival came, we'd always look forward, first of all, to the deep-fried carnival food, but the parades were a second, close second favorite. And there were three parades throughout the week. My family, we'd always set up our blankets at the same place uh, along the parade route on Venralty Avenue between 10th and 11th Street. We were pretty far down the parade route, so we'd be listening closely for the telltale signs that the parade was almost near us. The fire engines and police sirens were always the first sounds, and personally, for me, my least favorite. But once the parade got there in front of you, with its floats and its waving politicians and community groups all walking by, there was another sound, constantly moving the parade along. It was the sound of the marching bands. And even more than the marching bands, it was the sounds of their drum lines. The drum lines were the beating heart of the parade. You could never not hear drums as the parade moved by. 
They were always the first thing you heard as the band approached and the last thing you heard as they blended into the distance. Around the same time, you started to hear the next band's drums. Every once in a while, you'd get a real treat if the Holland Public Schools marching band got stalled in front of you. This was a treat because theirs was the only band that traveled the length of the parade route in wooden shoes. And they accompanied their drumline's cadence with Dutch dancing kicks and shuffles. You could feel the bass drums driving the beat all the way in your gut. And the percussive snare drums playing their complex rhythms. And the wooden shoes hitting the concrete in step with the beat. Theirs was a high-energy display of the beating heart of the parade. Now, when we open the book of 1 John, what we see in front of us is a high-energy display of the beating heart of Scripture. Love. If we look at where the theme of love occurs throughout Scripture, we get a graph that looks like this. There are different words for love in the biblical languages, but here I'm looking at the kind of unconditional, self-giving love, that agape love, if you know Greek. Some books play this theme loudly, and in other books it's much softer. If you look at the graph, the first big moment for love actually comes in the book of Deuteronomy of all places, that dark orange or red. This book has the second giving of the law, for the second generation of Israelites in the desert. And I personally find it fascinating that already in the New Te Old Testament law, God's law and love are tied together. And then you see a kind of crescendo of love through the Psalms and into Proverbs in the orange. After that, the theme of love goes a little quiet once we get into the prophets. But it still shows up in little bursts. But then in the New Testament, there are two very dramatic spikes in this theme. The first is in the Gospel of John that you see in light blue. That's the for God so loved the world that he sent his only son gospel. And the second big spike is here. In the letter of 1 John, it's that purple spike. Love is the consistent drumbeat throughout scripture, but here in 1 John... There are 28 occurrences of this word in five short chapters. It's like the marching band has stalled in front of us. And the drumbeat of love is pounding so hard, we can feel it in the air. Even in our short little reading this morning, the word love pops up seven times. The book of 1 John has been described as a commentary on the gospel of John. For the second generation of Jesus followers. The elder who wrote 1 John demands love again and again and again. And that's based on his reading of the Gospel of John, but it's also based on his reading of the community in front of him. You might expect that such a treatise on love would come out of a lovey-dovey Valentine's Day setting where everyone is just getting along and taking care of each other. But that does not seem to be the case here. First John was written at a time of schism or separation, a time of dissent and disagreement in the early church. The elder is beating this drum loudly and persistently, not in celebration of love, but as a wake-up call. 
This is the message you heard from the beginning, he says. We should love one another. The band has not stalled in front of happy spring tourists, but in between factions of angry believers who claim to each be in the right and who feel justified in their hatred toward those on the other side of the street. This treatise on love is not a celebration, it is a wake-up call. And the warnings about Cain show us that. See, the folks who this is written to, they were far enough removed from the time of Jesus that some people had started to question whether Jesus was truly human or if he just appeared so. And this is an important theological disagreement. And the elder uh, who is writing, he goes to great lengths to clarify, yes, Jesus was really human. But that's not the point of the passage we read this morning. In this passage, the elder is addressing the potential outcome of those arguments. Because theological arguments don't just stay up here in the realm of words and ideas. Their arguments had real-life impact. As the cracks begin to form among Jesus' followers, they find themselves on opposite side of the roads, lobbing insults and profanities at each other, sure that they alone have a handle on what is true. And as the cracks begin to form, hate seeps in between the factions. And hate is dehumanizing. So dehumanizing, in fact, that the elder says anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. If you hate a brother or sister, you're just like Cain, who hated his brother Abel so much that he killed him. Theological disagreements so rarely stay in the realm of ideas and words. Right? They have the potential to so erode relationships that brothers and sisters clinging to their own understanding of truth take opposite sides and come to hate each other. And hate works itself out in action. The elder says, you know, for, for the world to hate believers, well, that shouldn't really come as a surprise, he says. See, there's a fundamental disagreement there about priorities and values. But for brothers and sisters to hate each other, well, that's not going to cut it. Hate works itself out in action, in dehumanizing each other, in turning ourselves into murderers. Unfortunately, the first believers who heard this message from the elder were not the last believers to get in heated arguments. They were not the last people to lose track of that steady drumbeat of love. This is a reality even in the history of our own denomination. Pillar Church in Holland, I think, is a really interesting case study of this. See, Pillar was the first Reformed congregation established in Holland, Michigan, by a wave of Dutch immigrants. And at its founding, this church was a member of the Reformed Church of America. But then in 1882, a faction of folks from Pillar wanted to break off from the RCA and join others who had split from the RCA to form the Christian Reformed Church. Right, that's the denomination we're a part of. The theological argument started to divide brothers and sisters at Pillar. Issues like, 
Should we sing hymns in church services or only the Psalms? How frequently should we teach our, the catechism to young people? Can members of our congregation belong to fraternal societies? These were the questions that divided them. And compared to some of the issues we have faced in recent history, they sound kind of tame to us, maybe. But they were not at the time. And of course, theological arguments and disagreements don't just stay in the realm of ideas and words. They have a real-life impact. Hate works itself out in action. And at Pillar, the real-life impact came when a group of congregation members felt so strongly that they should leave the RCA to join the CRC that they basically seized the church building. They locked its doors with thick chains and stood there with axes in their hands, guarding the building so that fellow brothers and sisters could not enter. It's hard to see chains and axes as a sign of peace, of love for each other, even love for God. I wonder what the elder from 1 John would have to say to them. Maybe don't be surprised when the world hates us, but if we hate each other, well then we're dead inside. He said anyone who does not love remains in death. Because dehumanizing other people for their beliefs actually, in the end, ends up killing us, too. I believe this is the generational besetting sin of our denomination. It's been there with us since the beginning. Chains looped through the door handles, axes in hand, guarding against our brothers and sisters. We cling so desperately to our perception of truth. Failing to recognize that truth that causes us to hate a brother or sister cannot be the full truth. In our denomination, we are so busy asking the question, where are the lines? Who is in? Who is out? What's our position on this, on that? That only years later, if at all, we will finally bother to ask the question, how do we love? We too so easily lose track of that steady drumbeat of love. But you may not be all that interested in denominational things. Maybe you're not the kind of person who gets into theological arguments. But you probably still have experienced this. I mean, it's why everybody knows not to bring up politics around Uncle Bill, you know, especially since COVID. It's why Facebook invented the unfollow button and Instagram invented the mute button. So you can still remain friends with someone, but you never actually have to come across their ideas or see their posts. It only further distances us from each other and keeps us from being able to have hard but civil conversations. Admittedly, social media might not be the place to have those conversations. But we have taken up our positions on opposite sides of the road, armed with dismissive and insulting names. And in doing so, we have taken the side of death. Our disagreements so easily turn to hate, turn to dehumanizing rhetoric. And we start to look more like Cain than we care to admit. We so easily lose track of the steady drumbeat of love. 
And this is why we all need a good dose of First John in our lives. It's like the marching band has stalled in front of us and we are lined up on opposite sides of the road ready to hurl our insults. But God is pounding that drumbeat so hard that we can feel it in the air. The section that I read this morning unfolds like a conversation. We only see one side of the conversation, though. The elder responding to their uh, questions and their rebuttals. To start out with, in light of their theological disagreements, the elder wants to bring them back to the main message, to bring them back to the basics. And so he starts off by saying, this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But what is love? Now, it's a natural question that follows. I love cake. I love my dog. I love summer. What is love, right? so easy to talk about love. It's so easy to say we should love the sinner but hate the sin, in theory. But our hate for the sin works itself out in action while our love for the sinner remains only an idea, a supposed internal emotion that bears little fruit. So what is love anyway? This is how we know what love is. The elder says, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Love that does not result in self-giving action is not the love of God. How do we know what love is? God has shown us in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, we see that love acts. We see that love gives. Love sacrifices. If hate results in the action of taking someone's life, if hate results in murder, then love results in giving up your life for their sake. So if love is the drumbeat of Scripture, if First John is the band stalled in front of us, then Jesus is the section leader, the model, the leader, the teacher, the encourager, the empowerer. He shows us what it looks like to love not in words or speech, but in action and in truth. Ah, truth. Well, glad you brought that up. We can hear the rebuttals coming in. All this talk about love, what about truth? Love is great, but how do we make sure that we are still walking in the truth? This desire for truth, I believe, comes from a place of wanting to honor God of wanting to be in right standing with God. And so the elder doesn't just answer the question of how do we know we're standing in the truth. The elder also answers the underlying question. How do we know we're in right standing with God? Sometimes the way we talk about truth betrays a deep-seated fear in us. That if we step out of line, God is standing right there ready to condemn us. Ready to say, you know, I knew it. I knew I couldn't trust you with the truth. But to this, the elder responds, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. He says, if our hearts condemn us for not being in the truth, well, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. 
In other words, those voices of condemnation and fear, that is not the voice of God. That's our own hearts condemning us. But God is bigger than our hearts and will not condemn us precisely because of the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so your heart can be at rest when you follow God's command and do what pleases God. Truth and commands and pleasing God in the end are not separate things from love. Love is the drumbeat under these things as well. Because the command that puts our heart at rest is this. To believe in the one whose love was seen in his self-giving, self-sacrificing action, and then to turn around and embody that same kind of love in action toward each other. This is how you know that God is in you, that you are in God. Believe in Jesus Christ and love each other. And the greatest part of this is that we don't do it on our own. God gives us the Holy Spirit to assure us that God lives in us. God gives us the Holy Spirit to empower us to believe in Jesus Christ and to love each other. Self-sacrificial love in action is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. In one of her books, the writer Anne Lamont tells a story about a 10-year-old boy whose younger sister was very sick with leukemia. He was told that without a blood transfusion, uh, she probably wouldn't make it. And so his parents explained to him that fortunately his blood was compatible with hers. And so if he was willing to donate a pint of his blood, it could help to save her life. He told his parents he'd have to think about it overnight. Well, the next day he came and told his parents that he would, he would donate his blood. He would help his sister. And so they took him to the hospital and he was placed on a bed next to his uh, six-year-old sister. And the nurse withdrew a pint of blood from the boy and then transferred it to the sister's IV. He laid there in silence as the life-saving blood dripped into his sister. He was silent until the doctor came along to see how he was doing. And the boy opened his eyes and he said, you know, I feel okay now, but how long until I start to die? This precious young child had misunderstood and thought that this simple procedure would cost him his life. But he loved his sister enough to do it anyway. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us when the love of God is in us. And the good news is that what we think is a procedure that will cost us our lives is finally in the end where we find the most abundant and eternal life. And I see this work of the Holy Spirit in this congregation, and it should not go unnamed. You may be aware our denomination and church is now on the brink of another theological controversy that has a history of splitting denominations, of splitting even families, of sowing hatred among God's beloved. Of course, I'm talking again about that recent report on human sexuality. The Holy Spirit, though, has led this congregation to engage with this report in the first place through the lens of bearing with one another in love. We have intentionally decided that tuning into the drumbeat of love for one another is, in this case, our first priority. 
Almost 100 people in this congregation have been a part of listening circles around this report with this challenging conversations toolkit. Now, that's not to say there's no disagreement. Have we solved the problem? No, we have not. But in these groups, we've had the chance to set down our insults, our simplistic, one-dimensional caricatures of people we disagree with, and to see each other in the first place as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not a nice and tidy and rosy picture of love, but dying to ourselves is never nice and tidy and rosy. But this is how we know what love is. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and that we can be at rest in God's presence. And this is how we know that the Holy Spirit is at work in this place. The Holy Spirit is so working in us that we would surrender our weapons and our rhetoric of hatred and take up our place in the drumline of love that we would find our place among God's beloved children who love not only in words or speech, but in action and in truth until that time when the whole world is filled with the rhythm of God's kingdom of love. Holy Spirit, sustain us until that day. Please pray with me. God of love and truth, we thank you for this gift of your word. Help us to receive what we have heard. Open our ears to hear the drumbeat of your kingdom and so fill us with your spirit and love that we'd be willing to give up even our own lives. And in doing so, that we would find eternal life through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Amen.